It's Friday, May 23rd, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So Michael Bloomberg was in Israel to receive a prize called the Genesis Prize. Long known for grooving out to the Three Sides Live LP, as Mayor Bloomberg advocated that Abacab be played when he entered rooms. Okay, not that sort of Genesis. Think more. In the beginning, not she seems to have an invisible touch. Yeah. The prize was a million dollars, and Bloomberg gave it back. He just gave it back. He endowed 10 separate prizes for 100000 each to be awarded to do-gooders who advance Jewish values. Bloomberg is, after all, a billionaire. You know what? We say he's a billionaire, but he's not just a billionaire. And multi-billionaire doesn't quite get at it either. I mean, Chaim Saban is a multi-billionaire. He's the guy who made Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Bloomberg is worth, according to Forbes, $32.7 billion. So that million-dollar prize, it's still a million dollars, but looked at another way, like if you're Michael Bloomberg, it's point zero zero three zero five eight percent of his wealth. So let's just put this into context. To Bloomberg, that million dollars was to Bloomberg what to an actual millionaire, someone actually worth a million dollars. Do you know how much it would be to them? What's the equivalent? The answer is $30.58. A million means as much to Bloomberg as $30.58 means to a millionaire. Now, a millionaire, meaning someone whose net worth is a million dollars, is not exceptionally rich. They're in the top 8% of the population. Well, let's go right to the 1%, that famous 1% versus the 99%. NYU professor Edward Wolf says $9 million will get you into that top 1%. So what is 0.003? Three zero five eight percent of someone like that's net worth, it's about $275. So you ask yourself, I mean, we're talking about a really rich guy, like a really rich surgeon which, with really good cars and a country club membership, right? To Bloomberg, a million dollars is worth to Bloomberg what $275 is worth to that guy. And if you ask that guy, hey, you want to fly to Israel and get a prize and we're going to give you $275, I think he'd say, you know what, that's okay. Point is, Mike Bloomberg's rich. I think point proved. Coming up, a massive piece in the Atlantic magazine that puts forward the idea of reparations. We'll talk to our own Jamel Bowie about that. Then we'll talk to Emily Yaffe, Slate's Dear Prudence. We're going to do some following up, as only a great podcast can. We'll end with the spiel, our first GIST shareholders meeting. You're all invited. But now, on to the question of reparations. ta Coates has written a cover story for The Atlantic that is a great piece of history, rhetoric, and journalism. The case for reparations puts forward just that, encompassing most of the history of African Americans in this country. It doesn't, as past arguments have done, stop at slavery. It does use great imagery and analogies. Let me read a couple passages. The high point of the lynching era has passed, but the memories of those robbed of their lives still live on in the lingering effects. Indeed, in America, there is a strange and powerful belief that if you stab a black person ten times, the bleeding stops and the healing begins the moment the assailant drops the knife. And here's another part talking about the burden that black people have been made to feel based on past injustices. Here we go. It is as though we have run up a credit card bill and having pledged to charge no more, remain befuddled that the balance does not disappear. The effects of that balance, interest accruing daily, are all around us. 
I'm joined now by Jamel Bowie, who covers race and politics for Slate, who's written on this piece, as many of our public intellectuals are doing now. This is the sort of piece that just reaches out, and if you have the time to commit to it, definitely engages you. Thank you for coming on, Jamel. Thank you for having me. So before this piece, before this argument, I kind of get the sense that the uh, reparations argument was, for practical purposes, dead. I mean, maybe not in African-American studies departments, but even major black politicians would say, I don't endorse reparations, especially ones who wanted to get elected by um, white constituents. Am I? Do you think that I'm characterizing that correctly? No, I think that's absolutely correct. One of the great things about ta piece is that um, most of the conversation about reparations, pretty much all of the conversation about reparations prior to this, has been about slavery. And you know, for as much as I think that there is a strong case reparations to be made solely on the basis of slavery, it's almost a bit too abstract. And so what Tanasi does um, is focus the conversation on really the last. 50 or 60 years, about the last 100 years of public policy. Right, because if you just concentrate on slavery, there's the argument, if you look at the demographics and the backgrounds of most Americans, actually the majority of people would be able to say, well, my people weren't even here then. Why should I, the descendants of Lithuanians, Italians, Polish people, why should I have to pay for practices that ended, you know, 50 years before they got to the country? And what ta does is he talks about Jim Crow and he talks about lynching. And you know what, let's take this example because I knew about Jim Crow and I knew about lynching. I didn't realize, for instance, the circumstances around the GI Bill of Rights. One of the fantastic things about Coates' piece is that it sort of synthesizes a lot of historical and anthropological research around um, the black community, around racism in the United States. I don't think most people know key provisions of the GI Bill, low-interest home loans, housing subsidies, education subsidies, were explicitly denied to African-American servicemen. So... If you take, you know, two soldiers, both served in the Western Front in the Second World War, both, you know, both ambitious, um, you know, upstanding Americans, they come home, they want to better themselves and their lives. The white soldier is going to be able to do that no problem. The black soldier may either find himself unable to take advantage of any of the benefits, and if he could— if he could get an education loan, he has to wonder what colleges are going to take him. If he could get a housing loan, he almost certainly wouldn't be able to buy a home in the growing suburbs. And that, like like compound interest, the effects of that build down the line. The idea being that if you read this and if you're going in saying, oh, we've all had it tough or, oh, my group, this group, another group has had it tough, you know, over and over again, documenting that this is of a different category, that this is systemic and not just, you know, the prejudices of people and what can you do about human behavior. Right. Among all groups of Americans um, during this period, it was African-Americans who were basically excluded from the American dream. That if you were a hard worker, if you saved up money, you couldn't buy a home, you couldn't get to a decent neighborhood, you couldn't send your kids to better schools. And in all likelihood, the money you saved was going to be stolen through one way or another, not obviously obviously by you know a, a predator on the street, but a predator in a boardroom. You know, he doesn't address, as you say, exactly how reparations would work. Where do you take it from there? I I sort of went at it from the perspective of we could do cash benefits or we could do policies. You know, cash benefits come with a lot of problems. The first and foremost is who do they go to, right? Like who – let's say reparations now includes not just the period of the 20th century, but it goes back to slavery. Right. Which – 
black Americans are eligible, um, how much are they eligible for? Um, should it should we count this based on the number of their descendants who were enslaved? Should we count this based on the the amount of injury their families received? Once you get past those questions, and uh, you know, there's an argument that those questions aren't even really that important. Um, that if you just simply did all all Americans who identified as black on the census, that would be good enough. There's no reason to try to get this perfectly fair. Um, it's a pretty easy thing to do. You would you would determine the amount of money. A conservative estimate is going to easily get to the trillion, two trillion dollar level. Um, but from there, it's just a matter of the Federal Reserve quote pr- printing the money and giving it to people. It's not it's not it's not terribly difficult. Um, the problem, insofar that there is one there, is that a we don't know how this would affect the economy for trillions of dollars to suddenly be going in, um, and b you know it's not clear that this these direct cash payments would deal with the deeper underlying issues like the wealth gap, like gaps in uh, in housing and and all sorts of things. Is it important, do you think, that this piece, this Tanahasi Coates piece, not become, hey, that was great fodder, that was food for thought, it made me think about it another way, but actually energize a movement to get at least an, a, something official like a reconciliation commission, not vague notions of, yes, let us talk about our past and admit that we were bad? I hope that this is what it spurs, like a movement to really do this, because not talking about it um, and not reckoning with it and not not this not being a a subject of not just, again, not just conversation, but sort of something that the country itself through its institutions publicly addresses leads to the same abuses happening again or similar ones. So Ta-Nehisi mentions this towards the at the conclusion of the piece. The subprime mortgage um, scandal of the last decade was driven by unscrupulous lenders, banks targeting um, African-Americans and other minorities for the worst loans, regardless of their incomes. Middle-class blacks were an order of magnitude more likely to be offered subprime loans than middle-class whites. You know, the banks knew these loans were bad, and when the whole ship uh, sank, these minority groups, and African-Americans in particular, were hardest hit. And if you look at any chart of the racial wealth gap, you see it slowly closing and then after 2008 widening dramatically because that's the point at which all of the black wealth invested in housing is virtually destroyed. So for me, looking at that, that's 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 a, a, a retread of things we've already seen. Um, and it will happen again and happen again until we say and acknowledge as a country um, that we did this before and we cannot let it happen again. It's an amazing piece and you write well about it. So thank you. Jamel Bowie, who covers uh, politics and issues of race for Slate. Thank you so much, Jamel. Thank you for having me. Emily Yaffe is Dear Prudence, Slate's most popular column. Prudence receives letters, emails, really, from the distraught and the dispossessed. And she brings to bear her acumen, insight, and good old-fashioned horse sense to some of the trickier conundra of human existence. The missives of advice then go out on Slate.com. Am I maybe over-explaining this? I do think so a little. Anyway, so what happens after the advice goes out into the world? Do the readers take her advice? Does the advice go well? Does Emily ever regret the advice? We do 
don't know until now. Actually, that's really not true. Emily does a year-end column where she sometimes checks in. But you have never been able to hear real conversations with the real readers who are really affected until now. Is that last until now true, Emily? I hope so. So what we're going to do here are post-prudence impact statements where we follow up on someone who you gave advice to. And who do you want to talk about today? I want to talk about a 26-year-old guy who's been involved in a wonderful relationship with a woman he loves since they met in college. He's planning to propose to her. There's a little kind of oopsie along the way. Uh, A few months ago, he got drunk at a party, slept with a woman there, didn't use protection. He didn't complete the act, he says, but she's now gotten in touch with him and says he's one of three potential daddies because she's pregnant. He did say in his letter, I love how he puts this on me, however, taking advice you had provided in the past, as well as not wanting to destroy our whole relationship over one mistake, I decided not to tell. So he was writing to me to say, what do I do? I haven't told my girlfriend. Should I tell her? Should I just wait till this baby is born and hope it's not mine? I'm being tormented by this. Now, if there were some ABBA songs involved, wouldn't this be the plot to Mamma Mia? (laughs) Ah, there you go. Well, I said I hope that this woman uh, at least got a group discount on her paternity test. Okay. Yeah, so I love how he put it on me that he hadn't told so far. When he said that he followed advice that you had given, was he go to your friend's house and sleep with his pal? Was that some uh, of your advice? The The advice was, I have written many times in the past mm-hmm. that if you're in a long-term relationship and you have had a singular incident of straying that is behind you, it's regretted, and particularly because of how awful you feel it won't be repeated, that it's okay to have your punishment be living with the guilt Mm -hmm. instead of confessing. Now, I'm not saying, you know, absolutely don't do this. It's it's up to everyone. But I know people in this situation— And the person who's been told has often said, wow, I wish I didn't know this. Yeah, sometimes you could argue it's selfish of the person doing the confessing. Wow, glad I got that off my chest. Exactly. And then the person receiving the information is like, now it's on mine. Well, I, I I think that that would be literally prudent advice not to have to tell. Mike, when I answered this uh, question last December, I said, sorry, possible baby daddy. I don't think that applies uh, in this case. Uh, Look, from his description, it's very likely he's not the father. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he could be the father. uh, And as I said, this thing's taken on a life of its own. And he's sitting there sweating it out. Um, He could have contracted also some kind of STD. If Mm -hmm. he got chlamydia, passed it on to his soon-to-be fiance, she wouldn't know. Uh, I think he has to tell and hope that this long, wonderful relationship will survive this bump. Well, now we have with us, please no baby daddy himself. He does not wish to be identified beyond please no baby daddy, but that's cool. Hello, please no baby daddy. How are you? I'm great. How are y'all doing? I'm well, I guess. But the question is, how are you and baby daddy or no baby daddy? Tell us. So, uh, no, no baby daddy. Um, uh, I'm, I'm doing really well, actually. Um, 
Um, I, I didn't actually um, tell anyone anything um, and kind of just waited until the baby was born, which happened in March. Um, one of the other uh, guys and I um, both went and did a test um, under observation, mm-hmm. and my paternity test came back negative, and so um, kind of went from there. Why did you ignore your prudence's <laughs> advice? <laughs> um, I kind of knew what the result would be if I did tell. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my girlfriend's been very, very clear about that. So she'd break up with you. Exactly. Yeah, it would be it would be over. Um, which of course would be her choice, which still doesn't make it feel good to not not tell think that we have a great thing besides this one indiscretion and, and wanted to kind of go forward with that. I'm very happy it all worked out. Uh, obviously, people can ponder my advice, take it or not. I thought the overwhelming chances were, given the description of the incident, that please no baby daddy, you were not going to be a baby daddy. Um, I, I, I have one more little piece of advice be more careful on the demon rum situation, and that will help you uh, avoid this kind of thing. You know, this was something that opened my eyes. Um, I did change my ways quite a bit in terms of how I drink, when I drink, and what I do, you know, the situations that I let myself get in. So, Emily, some of your insight uh, as to the question, do I confess to an indiscretion, uh, is based on as you told me, that the person who hears the confession says, I wish I never heard that. Now, Please No Baby Daddy is saying that, you know, his girlfriend had made clear, and maybe it would be true and maybe it wouldn't, that I'd break up with someone if I know that. Does that change the calculation? Yes and no. I mean, who says going into a relationship, eh, two or three (laughs) times, this is fine with me. No, I still would have said what I said because, as we hear, it's not a total secret And that carries its own risk. But let's hope everyone's very discreet. Thank you very much. Please know, baby daddy, go forth and uh, multiply only by choice. (laughs) Well, thanks a lot. And thank thank you, Prudence. Um, Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. And thank you, Emily Yaffe. Dear Prudence, this was our first post-Prudence impact statement. And we're going to do (laughs) others. I think it went well. Thank you, Emily. Oh, my pleasure. This is fun. And now the spiel, wherein I will. All right, everyone, everyone, come to order, please, because I hereby commence the first GIST shareholders meeting. You're all shareholders. Come on up. Let's talk about the balance sheets and profits and losses, directions, and maybe Slovenians. First order of business, I was wrong. I was wrong to say that someone other than Benjamin Harrison was the last president to have a beard, and after him, Teddy Roosevelt and Taft had mustaches, but I said that Lincoln was the last to have a beard. In fact, Lincoln was the first to have a beard, although he was at first elected clean-shaven. So Lincoln, the first to have a beard, and her name was Mary Todd! Ho <laughs> ho! Joshua Speed, shout out! Okay, sorry about that. I was also wrong to say that Smith College is in Mount Holyoke. It's not. It's in Northampton, Massachusetts. I was also wrong when I implied that the A-10 Warthog is still being manufactured. It hasn't been produced for 30 years. And I was wrong to just make that Lincoln was gay joke a second ago. All right, maybe he was gay. There's no real evidence for it. His very close relationship with Joshua Speed was typical of male friendship at the time. Now a section I like much better. It's called I Was Right. I was right on an issue of taste and sensitivity. 
There was a member of the Chinese military who was recently indicted, and we were making fun of his nom de hack, which was uh, Ugly Gorilla, I think. And then I found out what the man's real name was. But you know what? I said something onto the tape, and then at the last minute, I'm like, why go there? Why even bother mentioning that this guy's real name was Wang Dong? Why even tempt or have an inclination of a snicker? No, we will... We weren't going to mention Wang Dong. We didn't mention Wang Dong. And I was right not to do that because I'm a sensitive guy. All right, more. I was right. I was right to think that this show could deliver an interesting, I hope interesting, 20-ish minutes of news each day, either as a drive-time companion for the commute home or a friend whilst jogging or a subway listen the next morning. What I would love from you guys as listeners and shareholders is for you to spread the word. I think there are more people who would like the show. So if you could share it on Twitter or write it up on Facebook and iTunes, or this is what Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate Podcast, does. He grabs people's iPhone, people he knows, people maybe he's talking about, Andy, what do you do? Oh, let me show you. Goes to the podcast app. If it's not there, he downloads it, puts the app on the phone, and just sets them up with a podcast. Maybe their first podcast will be the gist. I think we could be a good ambassador for the medium, but that's not really what I'm into. I'm into spreading the word of the gist and we ask you to do it. And it does go a long way because popularity leads to resources. It leads to maybe a little more production capacity to post this thing a little bit earlier. Maybe Andrea can start using a more humane grade of cattle prod on me. Maybe we could go from the Gallagher Black 200 stock prod to the McGrath Yellow Hotshot Prod Handle Cattle Sheep Goat Swine Prod, 9-inch. Andrea, do you think maybe the McGrath, you could start using the McGrath on me? I don't know. You're still making a lot of mistakes. I know, but I even think... If you could just, like, practice for 15 minutes before you come into track. don't you think a goat prod is better for a guy like me than the cattle prod? You're right. Well, I would like the smell of burnt hair yeah. to be a little less dominant right. in our studio. Okay. So, so I will it works consider out. it. It's a win-win. I understand. So when we started, we didn't even have a name. We had a philosophy. We had the philosophy of let's be interesting, let's be eclectic, let's be respectful of your time, let's say something, let's don't cover news out of obligation, let's cover it because we're into it. We surveyed many experts. We asked them who are the type of people we should interview. And here I consulted with a young hotshot in the communications field about who I should interview. The president. Sure. I mean, not the president. I think the mayor should be on. I think the president's so busy, you can't interview him. I think the mayor. I I tell you, that guy, he's like a son to me. And so we may not be doing presidents or mayors yet, but, you know, we've done character actresses and comedians and members of the uh, Israeli cabinet. We do still want to have great guests and a serious guest. And here's a funny story about that. When we were thinking of naming the show... Other than the gist, which was a late-breaking entry, we were going to name it 20-ish minutes. That was going to be the gist's name. But then I kept saying, I raised this issue, does it pass the Strobe-Talbot test? What's the Strobe-Talbot test? Well, that's where we have an interview we want to do. We call up Strobe-Talbot. He's a former Undersecretary of State. He's now president of the Brookings Institution, Russia expert. We get him, or probably his uh, person on the line. She agrees to do it. She says, all right, we're going to do this today. What's the name of the show? And we say, it's called 20-ish minutes. And then he says, yeah, you know, I think I'd be better off doing the Diane Reem show. It could go either way. I'd, I could probably get used to 20. We had Strobe Talbot on. He was like our third guest. And I told him this whole thing. I said, hey, you're Strobe Talbot. What do you think of the Strobe Talbot test? And here's what he said. The reason I go for justice is just it's just very punchy. Our last order of business is to name the listener of the, well, we've been on for three weeks, so it's less than a month, more than a fortnight. Fortnight comes from the old English word, fjortien. So the old English word for 21 is antwentig. 
So the listener of the N Twentig is Annie Twentig. No, it's not. It's Tim Badonsky who wrote in, identified himself as a Slovenian, and said he was offended that I have not been making enough fun of Slovenians. He gave me some fodder. He told me that Slovenians like the stuffed cabbage called Sodoma. Can't you do anything with that? You know what? I really can't, but I want to honor you as our listener of the N-Twentig, Tim Badonsky. And what we're going to call this listener of the N-Ten-Twig, we were inspired by Red Lobster. They would name someone who loved Red Lobster so much, and they called it their Lobstar. And so we're going to take that idea, and we're going to tweak it a little, and call you, Tim Badonsky, our Lobstar. Actually, we're not going to tweak it at all. We're just going to think of you as our lobster. Well, that is it for the show. Andrea Salenzi produces and gently prods. Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Don't tase me, bro. You can subscribe in iTunes. Yeah, give us a review. There's so many reviews. There's almost, um, there's over 100 reviews. A lot of you have written it up. We have a great email I ask you to listen to. It's slate.com slash gist email. Email the gist at slate.com. And remember, if that email contains witticisms or important news, you too can be the next lobstar of the Antwentig. <laughs> We're going to take off for Memorial Day. We need a break. Uh, we hope you have a great one. And thanks for listening.